I often paraphrase the compelling case made by Eric and Andrew to MIT economists in their influential book Race Against the Machine that there would be three specific groups of people who would thrive disproportionately in the new world. One, the superstars, the most talented ones in their field whether it's consulting, writing or singing. Second, the high skilled workers who can work with intelligent machines and technologies. Third, the owner or the investor who has access to capital to invest in the new technologies driving the great restructuring as the proportion of the rewards returned to those who own the intelligent machines is growing. Today, I had the privilege to talk to an investor who invests in category creating or defining tech companies with superstar founders. Welcome to Tech Me to the Future, our podcast about technology, innovation, and their impact on society and human behavior. Please welcome your host, Mayang Sanchetti. Amit Somani is a managing partner at Prime Ventures, which is a Bangalore-based early-stage fund. Before this, he held leadership positions for 20 years at Make My Trip, Google, and IBM. In this episode, we talked about venture capital ecosystem and the rapidly changing startup ecosystem of India and a bit on philosophy here and there. Amit, it's great to see you again. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Bank, for having me. So, Amit, I wish to talk about a bunch of interesting stuff with you today. But before we jump into those details, why don't you walk us through your professional journey and perhaps your spiritual journey as well? I know that you are one of those uh, philosopher uh, investor. And so maybe you can talk about these two and how do you think these two complement each other? Sure, Mayank. So I kind of grew up here in India, the classic sort of engineering path, went to one of the IITs and then went abroad to the U.S. for grad school. And I was in, uh, you know, the University of Wisconsin at Madison uh, doing my computer science grad school. And then overall spent about 14 years in the U.S. uh, and came back to India. And towards the latter part of that stint, I moved from engineering to product management. Uh, I know you do product management at Grab now. And then, uh, you know, that product management role led to a business role at Make My Trip, which is an online travel company based out of India. And then eventually I left and became what I call an accidental VC because uh, all my background is engineering, product, business, building building products, building teams, building companies, and, uh, and accidentally sort of uh, ended up becoming a venture capitalist. I am now a partner at a firm called Prime Ventures, and we invest in early stage startups based out of Bangalore. Uh, so that's a quick sort of professional journey. Uh, the spiritual journey has been a little bit uh, more uh, recent years, I would say the last five, six years, and uh, you know, a variety of different things. I have this you know, habit of taking like a year off every 10 years. In fact, I've written a blog about this called, uh, you know, everyone should take a sabbatical once in, in 10 years. And, and, and so the last one I took, I got into a lot of this reading about variety of things from philosophy to psychology, to mortality, to all kinds of things. And that got me sort of restarted on that path. Um, and that, that led to sort of more explorations around meditation, like Vipassana and you know, reading the Bhagavad Gita and so on and so forth. So that sort of two parallel tracks there, but let me just pause there. 
<laughs> Very fascinating. Uh, there are a couple of threads that I would uh, like to pull from there. One of my bucket list is also to do that 10-day Vipassana center in, you know, McLeod Gunge. Uh, but let me uh, touch upon a couple of professional aspects of you that you mentioned. Uh, were there any specific transferable skill sets of product management that helped you as an investor as well? As a product manager myself, just curious to know in case I should keep VC as a career option for myself. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, product managers, as you know, kind of are generally, generally speaking, right? Sort of uh, jack of all and masters of none, right? And unless you, of course, come with an engineering background or a customer service background or whatever you sort of learned your uh, kind of base trade. And therefore, I think there are a lot of things that are applicable to the VC world. Uh, I've never answered this question before, so I'm going to think on the fly here. So I think curiosity is like the number one trait, I think, for both product managers and, and VCs, right? So problem solving is another interesting trait. So obviously, you're not in an operating role as a VC, but you're trying to see what problems make sense, right? Understanding customer mindset, is the market ready for it and so forth. And again, I we, we invest in early stage startups. So, so a lot of the product skills do work a lot, even in evaluating companies, right? Saying, mm-hmm. is the customer ready for it? Is this the classic, you know, vitamin or aspirin? Uh, you know, your curiosity takes you to various companies, right? One that I often cite is a company called MyGate uh, in India, where I found because I liked the product a lot and we were apartment number 27 where they were deployed. So I picked up on that. So I think there are a lot of interesting things. I think the thing that you need to probably build on a lot more is on the financial muscle uh, with respect to the kind of building an investing career. But I, I definitely think PMs can make great uh, VCs. Sounds good. You also mentioned that you you lived in the US for about 14 years, right? Um, what are the couple of things that you think work very well in India as well that you saw in the US and we shouldn't shy in emulating those things in India? And what are the couple of things that you thought it would work in the context of India as well, but didn't. Sure. So, you know, if you'd asked me this question, Mayank, 10, 12 years ago, when I moved back to India, 2007, my answer would have been very different, right? Uh, I think we were, uh, relatively speaking, a fast follower kind of market, right? So we were trying to do the Google of India and the Facebook of India and so on and so forth. I think what has emerged beautifully, right? Thanks to the digitization, thanks to the mobile internet penetration, thanks to even more talent, right? Like product managers, engineers, you know, AI, ML engineers, et cetera, that have emerged now is a lot more India first problems are being solved here, which are actually relevant to the rest of the world. So mm. I think India can actually innovate for the five, the next five, six billion rather than being clones of US or China or, or whatever sort of developed uh, economy. Uh, so I think India first problems are very interesting. Uh, obviously what can be inspirational still from the US is the rate and pace of sort of technology innovation, right? The rate and pace of solving more big uh, audacious problems, right? I think India is still at a stage uh, where we are doing a lot more of the food and shelter issues, right? Whether it be in healthcare or education or digital India, or, you know, of course, e-commerce and all the kind of roti kapra makan stuff, right? So I think Mm -hmm. that those are things that we are, and I think that's just the maturity of the ecosystem uh, that needs to happen, right? In terms of the, economy evolving, the per capita evolving and so forth. So I would say, I think India first, India first for the rest of the world, uh, but still be inspired by the rate and pace of kind of innovation from the Valley and and the other more emerging, some more uh, evolved markets. 
Interesting. This is something that I wanted to discuss uh, probably at the later half of this podcast, but uh, because you brought it up right now, you know, India started with a sort of an IT boom, building technologies for the US market, as you rightly mentioned. And then there has been an insurgence of a new set of entrepreneurs building for the Indian market and Indian netizens. But I still believe that at some level, there are very few big companies which have emerged from India, which are building for the world. Um, I would like to leave aside the SaaS uh, products because I do believe there have been a lot of good companies coming from India uh, in terms of SaaS products. But if we talk about B2C companies, I find only few examples, maybe Zomato and Oyo, which have been able to cross the boundaries. Why do you think that's the case? And you also mentioned about India first. Uh, do you think founders should even aspire to go beyond India or should they just focus and keep their appetite limited to in India? Yeah, so I wouldn't actually dismiss SaaS because I think it is the probably the flag bearer for sort of global products being done out of India, etc. But since you said let's park it aside, let's let's leave that aside for a moment. Um, I think on B two C, right? You mentioned a few, right? Oyo, Zomato, now Baiju's, uh, and and several other folks that are building global products kind of out of India. And like I said, there's a maturity of the ecosystem, right? You started, you know, with this IT services revolution. I think SaaS enterprise software came next, right? So companies like Druva and so forth. Uh, now, you know, the, some of the SaaS companies, right? So some of the earlier ones like the Freshworks and so forth. The real global product companies are now beginning to emerge, right? Mm. And they're emerging because both the maturity of the product ecosystem, the tech ecosystem, India as a kind of market, not just to, you know, alpha test products, but to really have meaningful revenue um, has become sort of more prevalent now than uh, than it was uh, that than it was before right so i think there will be examples but it's not necessarily that you will take an india first product and take it to the us or to western europe or wherever right you could take an india first product and take it to you know south asia or you Absolutely. could take it to the middle east and so on and so forth right so i think for example a lot of the fintech companies something that we at prime ventures invest a lot in i think there's enormous opportunity for those folks to expand uh, in Southeast Asia or in the Middle East and so on and so forth. So I think those things will begin to happen. But I think the B2C revolution, which is sort of India first, but global is now sort of getting into the second, maybe third gear, right? In, in the next uh, year or two. Makes sense. I think uh, working for Southeast Asia market for a while now, I clearly see a similar pattern in terms of demography, the purchasing power parity and the basic problem sets that the people have over here. Uh, and I would definitely be uh, very interested to see a few of the Indian companies coming in and capturing the market overall. Uh, let me try to uh, get back to our earlier discussion about your investment thesis. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask about is, what is your investment thesis which makes Prime Venture different from other Indian VCs? And would you be open to sharing and giving us some sneak peek around what happens behind the doors when you make those decisions uh, about which founder to back and which founders, which companies to invest in? So let me take the first one first. So we are primarily an early stage VC that invests in product tech driven companies. That is the first kind of uh, broad thesis there. Um, there are two things we look for that are pretty unique to us and, and they're sort of somewhat talked about uh, semi-publicly, so therefore I'm happy to share it. Uh, one which I picked at Google, I spent several years at Google um, and it was from Larry Page, the, one of the founders of Google, which is, you know, why is something 10x better? Do you have a shot at making something 10x better? 10x right, is a thousand percent better. It's not 30% better, it's not 18% better, it's not some 
200 bips of the you know margin or whatever it's like is it 10x better and 10x better could be on a variety of different dimensions it could be customer experience it could be go to market it could of course be product and tech which is your your podcast here it could be many different things but it has to be 1000% better if it's 1000% better you end up investing in companies which are inherently category defining or even in some cases category creating right so if you look at a company like easytap or mygate or neo which is in the digital banking space etc these are all very unique sort of one of a kind companies when they start out obviously if it's a big market competition will catch up and you know other people will come in and so forth so you do have to compete and win otherwise uh, you know you don't want to be in a market of one right you want to be a category of one as peter thiel would say um, so i think that is one very unique thing that kind of we look for um, obviously everybody looks at you know tam team and timing how big is the market you know why now you know what's the team like is it a complete team There's, you know etc but really the two big things i would say that define us are is it tech product driven and two is it 10x better does it make it 10x better and hence is does it have a shot at being a category defining or uh, you know god willing a category creating company um you know a couple of other things that you end up doing a lot in in early stage that we end up spending a little bit of time on which may be helpful to your listeners is you know what do we look for in the teams right uh, that we are backing of course in early stage there's not a whole lot of traction to go with right means probably some early idea maybe some early customers maybe a prototype maybe a few thousand dollars or 10000 dollars of revenue or something like that right so one of the things that's really important is the ability of the team to iterate very quickly and iterate not just in the product and you know sprints and launching software of course that is very very critical as well but to be able to navigate the idea and the and the landscape very quickly so we look for that a lot right the iteration ability the learning ability uh, the speed of iteration etc because in early stage you have to end up navigating a lot right before you come to the product market fit uh, so that is one thing that is very very important that we spend a lot of time on uh, and trying to part of it is conjecturing part of it is you know we've learned some uh, lessons from the companies we have backed and the companies we have passed on and so forth uh, and the other one that i would say is really the uh, velocity right uh, which is that it's very one of the things that i have learned in early stages it's very hard and it's almost like a pavlovian push to you know push products into customers right so you want something where there's an inherent pull you know from the market um, so again i've sort of written a blog post about this but suffice it to say that if customers are ready for it in some sense and and you look for proxies to see are customers ready for it uh, are they pulling the product out of your hand so even if it's a partly incomplete product or a shabby product or a buggy product or whatever but they are still pulling it out of your hands they're mm-hmm. investing with their time often with their money if it's saas and so forth so those are two interesting thoughts that i think might be useful to share here makes sense uh, yeah i think some of the times the best plan is to not have a plan many of the times the founders come up with the entire blue ocean which are uncharted how much do you think at that stage a particular founder or a set of founders have the solutions figured out and do you think that is important from your perspective how ambitious the plan is and how much the founder has figured out the solution and the market in that particular domain yeah so often it's not figured out right by definition because we're sort of coming in pretty early so the two things you kind of look for and and one with a little bit of a tongue in cheek or a little bit of grain of salt is is the market big enough right and the classic examples that are always cited are the iphone and the ipod and airbnb and others where there was no hope in hell of market size and in fact many of the vcs screwed up and did not uh, invest in companies like airbnb and so forth right early on so there are these truly kind of one of a kind category creating companies that happen you know once in or twice or five you know five times in a decade 
but for the most of the part there's some proxy that will tell you that there is kind of real demand and there is stuff so you want to make sure that there is by some proxy right uh, on the customer side consumer side enterprise side that there is something which says okay this problem is real and the pain point is imminent uh, etc so we do look for the size of market on the founder side we just look for founder ambition and like i mentioned earlier learning ability and iterating ability because there is no hope of any plan right i mean uh, you know uh, excel is the sort of most creative uh, you know fiction writing tool that has been ever invented and therefore you can do all kinds of crazy things there uh, so actually the believability of the plan is very very limited to be honest right uh, mm. the believability is more on you know customer insight market insight speed of iteration learning ability uh, etc etc right so those are the kinds of things you're looking for maybe you do look for a you know what are you going to do with especially if you're in the fundraising context what are you going to do for the next year with the money that you want to raise so you don't want somebody who's like i'll just raise the money and then i'll sort of go to the beach and think what do i want to do right i mean that's not usually a good strategy uh, so while i agree with your like no plan is a good plan like you want like some kind of directional kind of where are you headed right what are you trying to prove out kind of thing but beyond that to have to summarize i would say founder ambition more important and large market more important right uh, and then just you kind of iterate your way into finding the product market fit or the solution or whatever got it so it boils down to the founder's passion big market and the product market fit thanks amit which one was your biggest miss in your investment career uh, do you also maintain an anti portfolio and something that you have learned from one and maybe made amendments to your investment principles yeah there is a there is a long anti portfolio list uh, in fact one <laughs> is exactly in your space uh it is before my time so i wouldn't say i'm necessarily the one that was on the part of that ic but uh, one that we would uh, talk about again uh, so taxi for sure was a company that we had the opportunity to do the seed round on and we didn't and of course they eventually sold to ola cabs uh, as you may be aware and um, and the idea there was we felt that it was operationally very intense and was capital intensive and therefore we didn't do it and of course if we had done it as a seed round uh, even with the i think they had a 200 or a 250 million dollar exit we would have made out handsomely on that investment um and so that is something we wonder about in the same ilk was another company which was doing quite well but you know recently sort of ran into some downturns uh, was urban ladder right which was uh, in the furniture space right online furniture and you know they would do custom furniture and deliver at home and all that stuff both of those companies we did not invest primarily for the reasons of operational complexity and capital intensity now in hindsight i mean even urban ladder up until a year ago would have made the anti portfolio list of course they had a more modest exit but in hindsight both were uh, sort of misses to your question about whether we would do it again you know maybe maybe not right but we do think about that a lot and there is a longer list of anti portfolio companies right <laughs> longer than we can go into here because at early stage you know both a tiger cub and a you know pup like a you know baby dog they all look the same right you're still sort of trying to figure out what this is going to be uh so so there are plenty of mistakes that you make as an early stage investor and often when we are even passing investor investments we tell the entrepreneur hope you post this on you know facebook or twitter or instagram you know 2 3 5 years later saying look you buggers you don't like you have no clue do you and and there's plenty of times where we don't so we keep we keep trying to learn and iterate i mean we are also in some sense a startup right we keep trying to learn and iterate from our learnings and and mistakes mm -hmm. absolutely and i i believe you also are picky in terms of the companies that you invest in uh, by investing about four to five companies uh, every year and i believe most of the companies that you have invested in are doing pretty well and almost everyone is afloat right now 
So that's pretty good. And one of the things that I know for a fact that you, along with your partners, uh, Sanjay and Shripati, you know, share a passion for working closely with the founders, especially during the early stage and enjoy sharing their journey in a high frequency, interactive and fun environment. You know, this reminds me of Vinod Khosla's quote that an investor is an employee you can't fire. What value do you think? <laughs> what value do you think a good investor adds in building long-term companies? And how should an entrepreneur go about choosing one? I actually was not aware of that quote, but it's an interesting one. I'll kind of mull over it later. Um, so I think, look, you know, there are many different ways to invest. I'll, I'll go on a little bit of a tangent, but I'll bring it back to your question. So if you look at the public markets, right, you can have a, you know, Warren Buffett kind of, you know, value investor, you could have, you know, hedge fund investors, you could have growth investors, you could have tech only investors, you could have, you know, whatever. So there are many different ways where you can capture value, right? Uh, so I think the same thing is true in the private markets and the same thing is true in early stage, right? So there are investors that I know will swear by, I will only come to the board meeting once every two, three months. And so long as the graph is, you know, up and to the right, you know, rah, rah, great job, let's move on, let's not do anything. And then there are others like us who inherently come, you know, probably our own kind of hammer is therefore everything looks like a nail, come from the operating and the entrepreneurial background. So we are very happy to help and roll up our sleeves and do whatever it takes, right? Uh, so it, I'm not saying this is a better model or not. This has certainly worked for us, like you said, right? We have a pretty good track record so far. Uh, and and uh, so I think the reason I think it's important, at least for us and why it has worked for us to have be sort of more actively involved in the companies. And the, by the way, the founders drive it completely, right? So we have no FOMO or, you know, need to kind of be an employee or to need to be a, you know, a, you know partner in that sense. But we are not passive investors, right? And we believe that in early stages, there are a lot of trade-offs and choices that one has to make. And, and therefore, just even having somebody there as a sounding board, maybe somebody to open doors, maybe somebody just to even cry you know, on your, on your shoulder uh, and so forth. And with reasonable frequency of interaction so that the context is there. Because I remember being in a publicly traded company, make my trip, both pre-IPO and post-IPO. You know, most board members were you know, useful and helpful and so forth. But if you're meeting once in three months, you have no context of what is happening right, in the business. Mm. Uh, and therefore, that frequency of interaction is really, really important, even if you're not really, quote unquote, adding any value. Um, so anyway, so I think at least we come from the side that, look, being an active investor is important. The founders pull us. The best founders pull us in the most interesting ways. I just recently heard this from another guest on the podcast that we run um, that I think Frank Sutman, I think the founder and CEO of ServiceNow, which is a large global SaaS company, maybe now approaching $100 billion in market cap, on, on his board meetings, he actually gives action items to each board member and he follows up 24 hours later saying, hey, did you do that? Like, did you did you call Mayank because we should hire him in one of our companies as the head of product or whatever? Like, no, well, kind of, no, no, no. Like you were supposed to call him, like what happened, right? So yeah. I think it doesn't matter, but I think people can help in many ways, right? I think we mm -hmm. generally tend to have a broader landscape view of the world. We, see, we can do a lot more pattern recognition. We can help with the Rolodex. We can help with partnerships. We can help with subsequent fundraising. Uh, or we can just come to the board meeting every couple of months and see that the graph is up and to the right. Uh, we prefer the former. Right. Any anecdotes that you would like to share where you have gone out of your way to help out the founders? Yeah, I would say out of the way, right? Because like you said, right, we treat it as our uh, as our uh, duty, right? As our karma, right? To do so, I wouldn't say. But, you know, I've, you know, my partner Sanjay, he's gotten on a plane at the drop of a hat, like two hours later to fly to Mumbai to help a fintech company do a partnership with the bank. Uh, and, and, you know, jokingly, I think, you know, the founder, but I won't mention them on the air here. Um, you know, the founder was at that time, 23 or 24. 
And he said, no bank CEO will take a meeting with you. So I'll just come because of my gray hair. Of course, he's being very modest. He's uh, Mr. Fintech before it was called Fintech. But he literally got on a plane and, and went to Mumbai to help this person get a deal done. And, and they got uh, to launch their Fintech product with that startup. Uh, I helped hire somebody from Google who was pre-IPO Google to come work in a startup you know, with barely a couple of thousand dollars of monthly salary. Uh, in, a, in a high risk kind of startup, right? Uh, where, and the founder said, there's no way we could have even got him to interview with us, let alone join us. So, so it, and again, I'm not saying this to kind of brag about it. I'm just saying we kind of help in whatever way we can. Uh, and and, and uh, so that's, let me just leave with those two examples. Wonderful. I also want to dig deeper about the investment ecosystem of India. We have seen great founders and companies emerging from India and a great interest coming in from the foreign investors as well. But India still heavily relies mostly on, you know, Japanese and Chinese venture capital, especially when it comes to stage B, C and D funding. And Indian VCs and family houses especially never had that appetite to pour hundreds of millions in these companies. Do you think that's going to change? What do you think about the Indian homegrown fund and capital coming of age? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at Silicon Valley, Mayank, it has taken 45, 50 years, right? One of our partners, Emeritus, uh, Mr. Raj Mashruwala, he's based in Palo Alto. And he tells us that when he moved to the valley in 1972 or 73, it looked a lot like India in the 2000s or maybe early 2010s, right? So it is just, it takes time for all of this to happen, right? Even if, even if I remember going to China quite frequently, pre-COVID era, and when we would ask people about dollar funds versus RMB funds, you know, up until 20, 2008, 2010, it was all dollar funds, right? International money was dominating, even in China, where trillions of dollars of market cap was created. Now, pretty much most Chinese VCs have RMB funds and the RMB funds, I haven't tracked it lately, but are beginning to dwarf the, the dollar funds, right? Because the returns have been generated, appetite has been created and so forth. So I, I suspect India will be similar. I think there are plenty of funds that are dual homed, uh, which raise capital both from India and from abroad. Uh, I think that will happen. Um, I also think that there is also a coming of age in terms of investing in innovation because classic mm. Indian business houses and, you know, not to name names, but, you know, if you look at the Tata group or the Birla group or whatever, I mean, they're very classic traditional businesses, right? Like what is the EBITDA? What is the cash flow? What is the gross margin? What is the net margin? And all of these things are also important. Make no mistake in the startup. But often the gestation period is much longer, right? Investing in innovation, that cycle is much longer. So I'm, I'm not sure when they will come and invest. But they're certainly acquiring companies left, right, and center, right? All these big names and Reliance and so forth. So I do think that, you know, perhaps the next 10 years, you'll see a lot more, you know, rupee funds, if I may, right? And and, and large ticket dollar amounts, as you're saying, or rupee amounts uh, coming into these startups. And, and these startups also are beginning to generate a lot more traditional business economics, right? Like in terms of cash flow and and, and revenue and so forth, which used mm-hmm. to be a little bit more ephemeral earlier. Um, and right now, what's the status of Indian startup ecosystem in terms of access to fund? Uh, do you think it's it has become easier than, let's say, a couple of years back? Uh, definitely, it's much better than a decade ago. But uh, lately, you know, every other startup which had slightest hint of product market fit was raising loads of VC money. And we have seen that a lot of investors have burned their hands as well. Do you think uh, the ecosystem has stabilized right now uh, or, or, or it's even a longer way to go? And especially how things have changed after the COVID? Yeah, you know, so I think that a couple of, couple of basic sort of assertions, I think good companies will never have problem raising money, right? 
good companies were able to raise in the 2008 meltdown they were able to raise you know uh in the 2012 2013 era and so forth so they'll always be able to raise right that is not an issue i think the problem is how many good companies can raise right and is it over indexed on the power law right on the on the ziffian curve right if it's only 10 companies that everybody is chasing then you will get these random kind of uh large rounds over you know over competitive and so on and so forth right but if you look at the broad market i think both the quality of the entrepreneurship as well as the number of companies have evolved right there are a lot more interesting companies that are being built out of india and both and also that there's a lot more capital right so funds uh, like we have like right? there are many other funds as well that are investing so i think there is broader maturity i think good companies will always be able to raise it doesn't matter uh, i think there'll always be a few you know fomo type investments right from vcs because like we talked earlier in the podcast often you don't know right like which one is the tiger and which one is the pup right so you're like people are like don't want to miss out kind of a thing but um if I, if you still ask me i think the market is overall under invested right um mm. and 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 in particular perhaps at the early stage and i think maybe you alluded to this earlier maybe even at the series b series c level right and and it 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 changes right like a marketplace you're in grabs you know this right i mean sometimes the demand is too little sometimes the supply is too little and you kind of keep sort of going in in sync um so i think that there certainly a year or two ago series b and series c were much harder to come by um i think c is also probably a little bit under invested uh because you know i think bangalore alone has 7000 startups right and at least my kind of uh, sound bite news uh, bite uh, metric is that maybe 3 or 400 companies are getting invested so i'm i'm not saying that all 7000 are investable but maybe maybe 700 are investable right but maybe only 300 mm. are getting invested in right so therefore i think there is in a in a marketplace sense there is need for both more supply meaning more capital and probably higher quality entrepreneurs so it's not just the Or, or or companies right so it's not just the 10 or 20 that everybody is trying to invest in but maybe maybe it will be wonderful if it was like 100 companies that everybody wants to invest in there's enough mm-hmm. to go around on that particular note how do you think uh, you know a society should have such marketplaces in built in its economy do you think there has to be few institutions that maybe facilitate these marketplaces to balance supply and demand or do you think it's just a, a cohesive nature of how economy works that uh, you know these things would fluctuate a little bit here and there but eventually would uh come to a balance just because of how capitalism works uh, i mean it's a loaded one and i'm not an economist so it's hard for me to say but i'll give you my sort of more pragmatic viewpoint um so i think the natural market forces are the best ones right there's enough capital that will chase innovation and and growth and and that capital will come to bear and it has come to bear and it continues to increase right so the number of dollars invested in the indian private market ecosystem has only gone up year after year after year right uh, even though some of it may be kind of taken by the you know power law the ziffian uh, curve the top companies there but still there's more capital even for the early stage um, i think the role that the government or the society can play is slightly different at least this is my personal point of view and again not speaking as an economist but more as a you know vc uh, practitioner is that i think if the government starts buying software right or investing in things that enable startups to thrive and i don't mean just like give me tax credit or whatever right really deploying things so for example i think the government has done an amazing job and two of my partners worked on this whole, whole this digital india or india stack as it's called things like aadhar upi etc yeah. which have become the rails for a whole bunch of startups right and uh, and have really enabled digital uh, india if i may say so right also one of the areas that we like yeah. to invest in prime 
so i think if they if the government not just invest in public goods and public rails and like open source and so forth but also becomes a buyer of software a, a facilitator of transactions and so forth i think those things can help like in a big way uh to to accelerate it but beyond that on the pure capitalistic side um i i'm not too sure maybe one more idea that i have which i think is very very prominent in the us is investing a lot more in research and early research so if you look at the graduate school programs a lot of the people like me who left abroad for the, for grad school and and so many others right all of us left because there wasn't enough of high quality grad school programs and again of course i left many years ago but even today i don't think there's that many phd's coming out of india in computer science or healthcare or robotics or ai or you know genomics or all these things so maybe the government can invest a lot more and make it a lot more attractive uh, because a lot of the innovation that comes from the valley uh, or from the us in general comes from all the government investments in universities in nsf in darpa and all these things so those are two things i would say buy buy from startups and to invest heavily in r and d uh, at the at the at the grad school kind of level right mm-hmm. make it very attractive for people to go do phd's mm-hmm. because maybe the next google can come from there absolutely i think very fair points uh, i think yesterday itself government of india sort of democratized the map building in india now anyone and everyone can go and build maps in india so i think that's a very good sign the other thing that you mentioned about that how the grad schools should cater to needs of the society this reminds me of israel israel is sort of a power hub of innovation and especially in terms of uh, you know cyber warriors as they say it and they have this after school classes for people who are not good in academics but can excel sideways in computer science and cyber issues and so on and so forth and because of that they have created an entire generation of cyber warriors and i think similar pattern we are seeing a lot of innovations coming in from china in terms of ai and uh, deep tech and i think artificial intelligence at some level would be that generation defining technology uh, which i believe we have the demography but would require you know to hone the skills of our uh, youth just taking a separate tangent into investment what do you think about retail investing and crowdfunding we recently saw an unprecedented rise of retail investors in the form of wall street bets in the stock markets pushing the price of uh, you know gamestop etc and icos are also becoming very popular these days what do you think about this as an alternative for uh, companies again you're 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 testing the fact that i have not taken any course in you know uh, economics but let me <laughs> let me hazard a guess so i, I definitely think that there is uh, there are two schools of thought right, that i have in my head right one is that it should be much more open and accessible to people that want to invest that said it is an extremely high risk asset class so if i were the regulator i would be really worried about people losing their shirt and the pant and everything else their socks right along the along the way so i think that the at least in the us there's this notion of an accredited investor right saying that it shouldn't be more than x percentage of your net worth or your x percentage of your last year's annual income or something like that that you're allowed to invest into these more risky asset class right classes right whether it be startups or you know uh, cryptocurrencies or whatever it is right so you have to you as the provider the supplier of those kinds of assets have to ensure that the investor that's coming onto your platform has a certain level of net worth right because otherwise you would in these high risk asset classes you could you could lose everything right so that is one part of it that said i think there is just so much innovation that is happening that it's a pity right if people are not allowed to invest 
in theory, right? If I'm a very happy Grab customer or an Ola Cab customer or a Flipkart customer or an Amazon customer uh, at the early stages, I don't mean post IPO and all that, right? That I shouldn't be allowed to invest in that if there was a possibility, right? Now, which way you do it, there's all kinds of complexity and secondary markets and marketplaces, or maybe even an exchange for startups like a, like a NASDAQ or a BSE kind of exchange, all that is to be determined. But at least that access should be available to people who at least have some some base understanding and a certain sort of income uh, accreditation, right? Sort of level, uh, keeping it more confined, right? To uh, kind of only people who have access, quote unquote. I I don't think it's a good effect. I mean, I don't think it's a good uh, good thing because then as the disruptive innovations happen, unfortunately, this whole Cantillon effect again, right? From the economics uh, literature, which is that the rich get richer. Because they are the only ones who can invest in the Grabs and the Ubers and the Olas and the you know Amazons of the world, and therefore they generate even more capital that will give them further access to invest more capital. Whereas you know people who don't have access, right? I mean, since you mentioned COVID, I mean, so many people lost their jobs and all that stuff. Maybe people are not even invested in the public markets. Forget these more esoteric private things and cryptos and all that. Uh, so I am much more of the opinion that it should be much more accessible and much more open. Uh, and much more transparent with certain guardrails, right? So that mm. at least the naive investors don't get duped, uh, right? By the flashy scheme of the day. Makes sense. Uh, do you think that customers investing in the companies that they buy from would also create some sort of loyalty towards the companies as well? Because now they are they have the skin in the game. A one hundred percent, right? And that may, maybe I don't know if you're alluding to that with your ICO comment. I have many a time bought companies whose products I love. Right, a la Peter Lynch uh, from the public markets, right? Like a Warren Buffett esque figure. And I remember one investment I made many, many years ago. This, of course, in the US. I don't think they're in Southeast Asia. Certainly, I think they launched in China. Is a company called Costco in the retail space, right? Sort of bulk retail. And you know, every, every once I bought it, every time I would go to Costco, and you know, the queue was like a kilometer long. I would love it. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a shareholder. I mean, why are there so few people? Like. I want to wait an hour in the queue, right? Like this is great. <laughs> so I think that you know, if if I love products and I patronize them with my customer dollars, I should be able to patronize them with my investment dollars and make money from it, right? I, I've been a big Android fan for many years, but finally got back into the iOS ecosystem, um, and I'm like, you know what? I should have just bought Apple stock ten years ago, and I could have paid for every Apple device given how expensive they are. <laughs> Because I love the product, and and I mean the stock is of course has done really well. So I I think it's a great idea, and I think it creates tremendous loyalty, because now whether it's a Costco or an Apple or X Y Z companies that I patronize at least with my customer dollars, I obviously prefer them, right? Absolutely. Uh, because I'm also an investor. No matter even if I have ten shares or five shares or fifty shares, doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm also an Android user by the way, but I, it it seems that I'll have to get an iPhone, or else I'll have to wait for long to get Clubhouse on Android. <laughs> I know that you are fairly active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Are you also already on Clubhouse? Uh, no, I am not yet. But my partner Sanjay sort of started something recently there, and uh, you know, we of course, like you said earlier about product management and investing, uh, one of the luxuries and privileges of this job is to dabble in a lot of different things, right? In fact, our own podcast was a result of just dabbling, and and saying, okay, let's go talk to interesting people and bring interesting mm-hmm. stories to entrepreneurs and VCs. So, uh, so yeah, I've I've, I've tuned into many a clubhouse session but haven't hosted one yet maybe Interesting. soon absolutely would look forward to that you share a lot of your thoughts and philosophies on uh, social media as well and i i think we need more investors and people from the startup ecosystem 
to share their learnings across with the entire generation of uh, young people is there any unpopular opinion that you would like to share that people do not agree with you on but you strongly stand by okay now you're really getting me into the, the into the trap here but let me let me share it anyway um so i think there's this big myth in every which way and i'm i'm sure you'll get flamed but you know like like they say all pr is good pr that only iit and iim founders are investable right uh, i think that's a load of bullshit uh, and I, even in our own portfolio more than half of it is not like that and i certainly know i mean there are vcs who would prefer that and you know they have their own reasons mm-hmm. uh, that is one myth that i would like to bust that i think great entrepreneurs can come from any schools any demographic in fact now i think this whole credentialing thing is going to go away right because as in you know which sort of more and more things become more open source and you can have your stuff on github or you can launch your own clubhouse or your own d2c brand or your own you know app or whatever right you don't i mean i can go check out the product or the experience and it doesn't really matter whether you're from you know iit or iim or wherever right uh, etc that is one uh, area and the second uh, which again certainly we don't uh, believe in uh, but maybe maybe a lot of people do is that entrepreneurship is a game of the young right that only the 22 year olds are going to become the next zuckerbergs and bill gates and so forth uh, i think the young people are a you know force to be reckoned with and they are amazing people to back but i we have seen some amazing entrepreneurs in their 30s 40s and even 50s right who are just amazing entrepreneurs right and in fact some of the more legendary kind of you know previous generation or two generations ago companies like intel like adobe etc were built by founders who started in their 40s right uh and uh, even in a tech competitive area i'm comparing it to india now right so i think that um you know there is a lot of these these two are things that are uh, probably not very popular or, or certainly controversial i wouldn't say popular or not because a lot of founders believe that only iit and iim invest you know founders get back and a lot of vcs also believe that of course off the record uh and and likewise on the age dimension right and and we think that these are all uh uh somewhat bullshit right i think a great founder can be anywhere i mean it could be a 22 year old who's a phenomenal founder and it could be a you know 42 year old who could be a great founder starting up now one last question amit what does your crystal ball say about the next decade any sectors that you would like to bet on what are you personally most excited about for the next 10 years i think we are on the second floor of a really tall building right and it has taken a long time to build the foundation maybe the basement floor 1 floor 2 etc and some magical things have happened right like we talked about india stack digital rails mobile payments mobile data etc um india itself as an economy is growing right i mean you're sitting out of singapore so you know that when per, per capita income reaches a certain threshold right the famous Ali, alibaba study 4000 per capita magic happens on all this internet commerce you know uh, digital economy etc so i think as as our prime minister mr modi has said right we'll be a 5 trillion economy uh, 5 trillion dollar economy in 5 years now whether it takes 5 or 7 or 8 or 4 we don't know but okay somewhere in the next decade we're going to be a 5 to 7 trillion dollar economy a top 5 economy in the world pretty much everything is up for grabs right uh, no pun intended i think that you know we are very bullish on fintech and financial services i think that's going to be really amazing uh, we often talk about something called digital india so india is going from you know data poor to data rich no tech to everything tech uh, you know no internet connection to everybody on a smartphone mobile with high speed internet connection so every part of the economy is going to get digitized right whether it's healthcare whether it's education whether it's agri tech whatever so i think all of that is up for grabs um, and even though you asked me to put it on the parking lot i'll put it back uh, in 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 the in the on the you know floor here 
I think SaaS is also going to be very big from India, right? Because India has the muscle power, uh, you know, in, in terms of engineering product and now distribution, G GTM, understanding distribution networks like the Googles and Facebooks and uh, others of the world, right? Uh, the G2 crowds and the Capteras that I think these three trends are super exciting and we are looking for entrepreneurs to back in, in, in each of these areas. Uh, FinTech, Digital India, as well as Global SaaS. Interesting. Super fascinating, Amit. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. It was delightful to have a conversation with you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, man. Pleasure to be on the show. To my listeners, I'm glad that you made it until the end and I hope you enjoyed listening to the episode. I'll be publishing one episode every two weeks, at least for now, which means that you'll have one new episode every alternate week, mostly on Wednesdays, of course. Till the time guests are willing to come on the show and talk to me and I have few listeners, however modest in number. So, please subscribe and follow the show on whichever podcasting platform you use to get notified about all the new episodes.